Good morning. My name's uh, Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. And uh, we're going to try something a little bit different today that we haven't done before. It's called Preach Your Journal. Uh, and so I should explain that a little bit. Uh, we, uh, the, the different preachers in our church, we have a plurality of preachers sit down in preaching meetings and uh, we plan out various series of uh, the church, where what uh, books of the Bible we're going to go through, and, and at times what topics we want to hit, um, and we do that on in, in the calendar system. We lay that out pretty far in the future, and we we meet regularly to kind of plan that and tweak it and change it. Um, and so a while back, I decided I, I wanted to add in some one-offs, just Sundays in between series where the preacher would open up their prayer journal and and just preach directly out of whatever God has been talking to them about. So because of that, uh, it's probably not going to relate to anything that we're going through in terms of specific series, but rather uh, what you're hopefully going to get as preachers get up here and do these uh, preacher journals um, one-offs, you're going to get what is just a very personal uh, message from uh, the Lord to the preacher and from the preacher back to the Lord. And then your job, uh, which is somewhat your job every single week that you come in and you hear the word of God proclaimed, is to listen to what God has been talking to the preacher about and determine what in that has value, where, where the Lord and the Holy Spirit will be working in you uh, as you listen to how the Lord is working in someone else. And uh, that's what we're going to do today. So I want to talk a little bit about legacy, and I'm going to read to you um, the front page of this book called Kazon. Uh, Kazon is the Hebrew word for vision, and Kazon is a book by Craig Rochelle. It's one of two books. I think I mentioned at some point, maybe in one of the fireside chats. Uh, it's really about looking kind of at your life as a whole and, and looking in and praying through your calling and some things like that. Uh, but I want to read you this first page because I think this is very impactful and it kind of set the tone for for this series today. You ready? Four of you are ready. Um, okay, all right. Well, for the four of you, here we go. Most people take a long time to die. This is no way to start a book, you say. But think about it. There are those few who go suddenly, accidents, heart attacks, gang shootings, a, slipper, a soapy slip off the edge of a tub. But for you, at the end of your life, chances are you will die in bed, waiting. You wait, and while you wait, you think about the weeks and years that have gone by. And sometimes you'll wait four weeks and years to die as you look back at your life. So I want you to imagine yourself lying in bed and reflecting, reading back to the chapters of your life story. What did my life add up to? Did I really matter? What did I live for? Who will remember me? What will they say about me when I'm gone? Why was it important that I existed? So many questions, so much time. Will you lie there with no regrets, some regrets, nothing but regrets? Imagine, or not. I mean, you'll probably have time to think about it when you get to that bed. So you could just wait. Millions do. See what comes, wait until the final pages of your life story to see how it turns out by then. But that's no way to end the story of your life. Here's one more thing about it. The decisions you're making today are actually making the bed you will lie in when you die. Which is why I wrote this book. To help you see life differently, to see it the way your creator saw it before you were born, and to live it with purpose and passion. 
starting now. It's a really good book um, that walks you through taking a look at God's calling in your life. But I want to just submit to you that I don't think that a lot of people think about or give a lot of thought about the legacy that they will leave behind. But I think about that a lot. And particularly over the course of the last years, we've gone through ministry changes at the church. I've had a lot of opportunity to think about legacy. Uh, and, and what really drives me when I think about the legacy of my life is not the things that I will accomplish, but rather, what would God say about me if he wrote my obituary? I got quiet. Because he's the one that sees it all and knows it all, so what would God say? Someday I will die, and people will say things about me, things they remember, impressions I left, memories that they may have of me here on earth. But for me, it's not enough to have a positive impact. It's not enough to accomplish things. It's not enough to be a hard worker or to be a good husband or a good dad because I believe I was created and pursued and saved and redeemed and reborn for one overarching reason. And the priority of my life above all else. And if I can't do that, I'm a failure. Cremate me, dump my ashes in the garden and move on with life because I want to be known for this. So I wrote my own obituary. It says, today we remember Daniel. Not a guy who was overly charming, intelligent, or talented, and certainly not tall. But Daniel was a guy willing to chase after God. <clears throat> With a ferocity and passion previously unknown to mankind. He wanted to please God. And everything else in his life sat in the glow of that pursuit. When God said go, he ran. When God said work, he toiled. When God said love, he melted. His time here on earth was entirely shaped by his pursuit of knowing and pleasing God. That's it. That's my goal. And everything else sits in the shadow of that. And I understand that for many of you that that level of intensity is intimidating. I get that. I've heard at times that I can be unapproachable. I don't want to be unapproachable, but I will tell you, I can't turn this off. This is, this is my personality. This is the way I was born. You can ask my parents. I've been this way since I, since I came out of the womb. But I can love you, and I can learn to be a better listener, and I can get better at being corrected and being a repenter, but I can't separate this personality from me. And you don't have to be me. I'm just preaching my journal. I'm not trying to shame you into being me, but we're going to open the Bible today, and I think that you're going to see some of what in Scripture made me this way, because I keep asking this question, how do I please God more? And I've been serving at churches for a long time. I've been uh, an ordained minister for over 10 years now. I've been a staff pastor where this was my vocation for about 13 months now, but it's been my goal to please God for a long time, and being a pastor is not necessarily pleasing God. It could be but it may not necessarily be. So here's my first point, and I'm gonna explain this, and then I'm gonna explain what's in my journal and why I chose this topic. To please God, we must know him. That seems probably very elementary, but we're gonna see that it's not. To please God, we must know him. Psalm 46.10 has been haunting me for about six months. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. 
I'll be exalted in the earth. What does it mean to know God? We talked a little bit about what it means to know God and be known by God in, in some of our fireside chats that are on Spotify and YouTube. But I want to drive into this day, today by opening the Bible and just looking at a couple stories about what does it mean to know God. I believe that what we're going to see in the Bible, and you'll see this just in regular life, that there are kind of three relational circles three uh, ways to know God. And in that, what you're gonna see is, is each of these ways is relationally closer. And when God says in Psalm 46.10, when the Bible says, be still and know that I am God, they're talking about this intimate, personal, real knowledge of God. And we, for, the, for most of our lives, if we're not careful, we're not very intentional, we, we don't ever sit in that spot. We sit in these outer circles that isn't really what scripture's talking about. And so I wanna, I wanna walk through that. Here's the first way that we can know God, and, and we see this in the Bible, and we see this in people, and we see this in our world, and that's this. To know God through hearsay. To know God through hearsay or rumor. And we see this in, in the Bible, and, and I'll give you a couple examples of this, um, but, but first I'll give you a quote from Tozer, and this will make sense. This is A.W. Tozer's quote. He says, it was Canon Holmes of India more than 25 years ago called, who called attention to the inferential character of the average man's faith in God. To most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He's a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate but he remains personally unknown to the individual. He must be, they say, therefore we believe he is. Others do not go, even go so far as this. They know of him only by hearsay. They have never bothered to think the matter out for themselves, but have heard about him from others and have put belief in him in the back of their minds along with the other various odds and ends that make up their total creed. To many others, to many others God is but an ideal, another name for goodness or beauty or truth. He is law or life or the creative impulse back of the phenomena of existence. These notions about God are many and varied, but they who hold them have one thing in common. They do not know God in personal experience. The possibility of intimate acquaintance with him has not entered their minds. While admitting his existence, they do not think of him as knowable in the sense that we know things are people. Now, the Bible would actually uh, say this in Romans 1. The Bible affirms that you and I, even if we didn't know God personally, should be able to deduce or infer from the evidence around us that God exists. In Romans 1, 18 through 23, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, you and I, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give, him th give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So just nature alone around us should be enough for us to infer that there is a God. But that is, that's merely the first step of knowing God, to look around, to look at other people and, and realize there's something else. That is, that is merely the beginning, not the end point. The whole point of the nation of Israel in the Bible, if you go read why God cho chooses the people of Israel, why he creates that people group, which is a very small people group in the history of the Old Testament, and, and he, God even says, there's not really anything special about you. You love to hear that from God, right? You don't want to hear that from your mom or dad. It's really not anything special about you. <laughs> but 
God, God specifically chose them, and they were a small people group that was not very powerful and not very numerous. And he said, the only thing that's special about you is that I chose you. So that, through God blessing the nation of Israel, other people would see God and deduce, infer, man, there must be a God. In Isaiah 49, 3 and verse 6, it says this, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Verse 6, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God wanted us to be able to infer or deduce him, but not stop there. There's nothing wrong with this, but when you, when you merely look at others for your knowledge of God, when you merely look at nature for your knowledge of God and you stop there, I did, there's a warning here. Grandma's faith can't save you. The pastor's faith can't save you. You have to continue pursuing a greater knowledge of God. You must get to the point, like Romans 1 says, where we honor him as God. That's what Romans 1 says. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So it's not enough to know that there is a God. It's not enough to believe there is a God. You have to know him to honor him as God. And if you've been coming to church for any real amount of time, um, I suspect you probably know more about God than this, right? You've, you've been listening. The Bible's being read. You're hearing things about God. So, so there's a second sort of layer of relational proximity where we go from just deducing that there is a God. When we go from just sort of hearsay, other people's rumors about God, and we begin to know God through what I would call ideal or principle. And here's what I know, mean by knowing God through I, ideal or principle. Uh, and, and I would actually say that most cultural Christians probably fall into this bucket. And this is really important. I, I need you to hear this because what, the dis- difference we're gonna dis- describe between this second relational knowledge of, of how to know God through ident- ideal or principle and then the third one, it make all the difference in the world. And I'm gonna show you that. They make all the difference. I want you to look at the story that we see of Jesus in Mark 10, 17 through 23. It's uh, usually called the rich young ruler or the rich young man. I'm gonna read you this and I'm gonna explain why this matters so much. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus. He knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Come know me. Principles and laws, not enough. You need intimate knowledge. Come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You see, it's possible to know the character of God, the attributes of God, the way God works, the morals, the holiness of God, and still not actually know God. Do you see how scary this is? The rich young ruler 
was following all of the laws. Jesus lists out all of these morals, all of these commandments, all these things that are from scripture. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, I'm doing all of those things. He wasn't lying. Jesus does not challenge him and go, no, you're not really. He goes, oh, great, that's good. And yet it's still not enough. How do we know it's not enough? Because the rich young ruler knew it wasn't enough. That's why he came to Jesus. Because when you only know God through ideal and principle and rule and morality, it doesn't feel like enough. Not if we're being really honest. And Jesus says, you're right, it's not enough. Go sell everything you have and come know me. Come know me. And he turns away. If you are really, truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you have experienced God at a deeper level than this at some point in your life. At some point in your life, you have personally met and experienced Jesus. That is, when he awakened your soul, that's what happened. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus actually says this, right? We know the difference between just knowing things about God and knowing God. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says, my sheep... The believers, the regenerated, the people who have been saved and reborn, my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me because they know him. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus, when he called you to life, if you, are, if you are a believer, Jesus regenerated you. He called you to life. You were dead bones. You were, there was no soul. There was nothing there. You were dead to everything in sin. And Jesus called you and you heard him. But once that happens, once Jesus has entered into your life and he has awakened your soul which only he could do, you and I could not do that, then it is our job to pursue him. A.W. Tozer would say it this way, the impulse to pursue God originates from God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. He waits to be wanted. Maybe an, another illustration will help. Um, these three levels of relational closeness. So the first one, by hearsay, imagine uh, you are an orphan from another country and you're gonna be adopted by an American father. But the only thing you know about America is what you've heard because you've never seen your father, you've never seen the man, you've never been to America. You've heard lots of things about it. So you know about your father about as well as anyone could from another country who's never even been here and never met him and never seen him and never been an American. And to know God by ideal or principle is to be adopted but not have yet met the man and be living in his house but never actually spent any time with him. So you begin to study all there is to know about America. You study the history books and you learn the language and the traditions and you get offended when they're broken and you memorize the laws and you cheer on democracy. But you still don't know your dad. And that leads us to our third way of knowing God and is to know God in personal relationship. 
personal relationship. Now, I'm gonna read you a series of verses. I believe that uh, it, it is by design that we are to be able to infer, to look around us, to look at other people's faith and testimonies and realize there's more to this world than this daily grind, that God exists. That's by design, but that's not enough. And it's wonderful to study the laws of God and read the Bible and have Bible studies and, and, and go to church and sing the songs and learn the traditions. That's great, but it's not enough. Listen to the way the Bible speaks about knowing God. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God, and in his righteousness all these things will be added to you. But seeking is a proactive verb. It is you pursuing. 1 Chronicles 16, 11, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Matthew 7, 7 through 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There are a lot of prayers from Paul to New Testament churches that desire for them he writes this to them. I desire for you to discern or learn or mature so that you will know how to please God. Well, what do you mean? How, what do you mean know how to please God? I know how to please God. I know that I'm keeping the rules. I'm living morally. I'm good to my wife. I mow my, mow my lawn and I show up to church on Sunday most of the time. Right? That's how I please God. No. Not at all. Hear me. The Pharisees kept all the laws. They were not pleasing to God. They were the opposite. They were the biggest thorn that Jesus dealt with. Religious people. The rich young ruler kept all the laws and it wasn't enough and he knew it wasn't enough. So how do I please God? Why do I have to learn what it looks like to please God? Why, if I already know the Bible... Don't I already know how to please God? No. Why not? Because it's different for each of us because it is relational in nature. Listen, Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, listen. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because you need faith to do the thing that it's required to please God, which is draw near to him. So I'm not saying throw out all the morality. I'm not saying throw out all the laws like they're, they're, they're independent and they don't matter. They do matter, but they're not enough. If you want to please God, you've got to draw near to him. To draw near to him, you've got to seek him. To seek him, there's got to be a pursuit of him, a personal relationship where I am pushing after. Man, I want to know you more. And it's never enough. We've got to be hungry. Just a total side note, but anyone ever remember the little Muppet commercials where they had LeBron and Kobe as little Muppets? Does anyone remember those a couple years ago? 
Man, they're some of my favorite because they did uh, funny voices for them. And it was before LeBron had won any championships and Kobe had a bunch of rings. And, and he used to, somebody, some kid brought like a plate of cookies and Kobe took them all. And he's like, if you want to be a champion, you got to be hungry, LeBron. He just ate all the cookies in front of him. All of them. But I, I feel like that's actually the, the message to the Christian. Like, don't ever be satisfied with how well you know God. Don't ever be satisfied in your pursuit of God because there's always more because we're never really all the way there. I want to be hungry all the time. I, I, I don't want to know God through rumors about him. And, and I don't want to just know God through his influence and his work and his miracles and his power or his morality. And, and, and that's, that's the problem for me is that in my prayer journal, this is, this is why I wanted to preach this, is that I just feel like I spend far too much of my life worshiping God as an ideal or a principle and not as a close relationship and a person to be known. So, so, so the walk of Christianity, too often I look at my life and realize that I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of living out life with these general guidelines of the Bible as if that's enough. So I, like, I try not to sin and I try to do good things. That's not a personal relationship. Imagine trying to take that same standard in your marriage, for those of you that are married, right? So instead of a real personal relationship, like I know a list of things that my wife generally likes, so I do those things. I actually do them on my own where my wife's not even involved, but I mean, she likes those things, so if I do them, it's probably cool, right? And I don't have any deep conversations with her for months or maybe years and I spend minimal amount of time with her personally, but I just sort of do my best to live my life and the things that she likes and not do the things that she doesn't like because that might offend her. So, you know, I cook her favorite meals and I eat them without her. <laughs> and I put on her favorite shows and I watch them by myself. And I pull up old photos of her and I look at them longingly, but she's in the other room and I won't go in there. And I pull out stories of memories of awesome things in our past and I meet with other groups and my small group and I get around and we talk about stories of my wife, but I don't invite her. All the while she's living in the house in another, another room and I just don't have the time or the energy or the desire to go in and know her, talk with her, pursue her. And I do this with God all the time. I have a religious routine that's righteous and admirable and empty. I want to be hungrier. I want to be hungrier. So I have this, this line in my prayer journal that I write over and over again. What do I need to do to be hungrier? Why am I not hungrier? In my life, I don't want to settle for good circumstances. Christian life in America seems to be this weird ebb and flow between good and bad circumstances. Have you noticed that? Like you get caught up in really bad circumstances and suddenly we desire Jesus' presence. You know why? Because in a crisis, in a storm, in trauma, in grief, it's not enough to have a God of principles and ideals, amen? Like I got no faith in principles and ideals when the bottom has fallen out and I'm screaming and I feel like I'm drowning in life. I need Jesus to show up and be real. So when I'm on the boat and Jesus is taking the nap and the storm gets crazy and I think the boat's going to capsize, all of a sudden it's not enough that Jesus is around. I need him up and awake and alert and helping. Right? Like that wasn't, Jesus was close, but that wasn't good enough. 
I need real Jesus doing things in my life because the storm's crazy and I... And, How come I only want Jesus when there's storms? How come it takes tragedy in my life for me to want real pursuit? I mean, like, like I need Jesus to be so real, but only when things are bad. Like when, when my wife and I lost a child, Jesus and I were talking all the time, nonstop. Not 15 minutes in the morning for a Devo, just all day, all night, middle of the night, next morning, all I'm doing is talking to Jesus all the time. When I go to the ER and they can't figure out where all the blood's coming from and I'm in pain and I end up on the floor of the hospital room crumpled up in a little, Jesus and I are on a first name basis because ideals and morality doesn't feel very comforting. And so I start to wonder in my own Christian life, can I even love Jesus when my life is not falling apart? And why don't I love him more when things are going good? And God, can I, am I incapable of actually pursuing you when circumstances are good? Do I need chaos in my life? Does the bottom have to always be following out? Like I, I feel like an immature Christian that the only way God's gonna get my attention is to let the bottom fall out because of my own choices. And I feel like that the, the real definition of spiritual maturity that we never talk about is actually staying just as hungry for God's presence when things are going good. Because we have some funny ways of looking at spiritually mature Christians, right? Calling them mature. And, and it's almost always due to like how much they know, how good they are at theology or doctrine. How, how, what, 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 how much morality they show us externally and publicly as if that's somehow a good thing. Saying that spiritual maturity is linked to righteousness or it's, or it's represented by how righteous we look is just absolute ignorance of Christianity. Like, like you're not even getting it if you think that matters to God. It's like saying that a tree is healthy if it's green. Jesus would say the tree's healthy if it produces fruit, not if it's green. Why? Because there's trees that are green that produce no fruit because they're not healthy. Someone painted them green. They're dead. You can take a dead tree, paint it green, that doesn't make it healthy. When we take a life of following ideals and morals and righteousness and we don't know Jesus, we're not spiritually alive. We're not vibrant. We're not thriving. We're not producing fruit. We're just getting along. Tozer talks about wanting to know God more. He says this, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. 
Give me grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. And so again and again, as I flip through the pages of my prayer journal, I have this burning question. What does it take to stay hungry for relationship with the Lord, particularly when things are not a mess? Because I don't need any instruction on how to cling to God when things are a mess. Man, I am an expert at that. There's one thing I'm really good at. It's screaming for Jesus when there's a storm. Amen? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But how do I stay hungry when he blesses me? Many of us pray for blessings. And in my life, I often wonder if I can handle the blessing. I used to have a buddy who would always pray to win the lottery. I said, do you know what a wreck you'd make of that? Well, let me ask you this question. What if we use this filter? Would winning the lottery make you more desperate for Jesus or less? Just think about that for a minute. And here's your, just listen to me. If the answer is less, why would you want it? Why would you want it? I don't want to look back at my life if I have the opportunity at some point to look back at my life and say, man, 70% of that, 80% of that, 90% of that, I just went along with whatever. I just lived life kind of okay by the principles of Christianity, but I didn't vibrantly experience relationship with Jesus. I just wasted it. I just wasted it. And so I'm often asking myself, am I personally experiencing life with Jesus or am I just walking down this path trying to stay on the guardrails? And I'd ask you to ask the same thing of yourself. Have you stopped short of knowing God? Not knowing about him, not knowing of him, knowing God. How do we do that? How do we do that? Here's the first thing. We've got to get to the point in our lives with conviction that nothing is off limits to God. Nothing. You don't make decisions of your own life. This is, this is, the, this is the cultural Christian problem. You don't let God in to give you general guidance and um, advice about your life. God owns you. He created you, he redeemed you, he is your master. Your job is to seek his will to do anything. People are saying like, man, uh, you know, I, I am not sure that, do, do, you know, do, do, you, do you really need to hear from the Holy Spirit to decide what job to take? I'm like, man, you need to hear from the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart, man. Yes, you do. I see this all the time with decision-making with American Christians particularly, and this is because we're wealthy. 
I'll talk to a brother or sister about something that, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm really having a tough time over this decision. I've been praying about it. I'm talking to God. I don't know if I should pick A or B. So they've given God, just want you to think about the arrogance of this. They've given God an A or B question. One more time. They've given God sovereign, immutable, creator of the universe, Lord of your life, an A or B choice. And they're waiting on this answer. And I, you know, I look at that sometimes and go, I feel like you've made 39 other decisions to get up to this point. Were those from God? Or did you execute that plan all the way up into this point? There are, listen to me, if you seek God, there are seminal moments in your life where you will have a clarity because you finally stopped long enough and you turned off your phone, turned off your TV, sought God, and he will talk to you and you will realize that the last 39 decisions were not from God. And there is no A or B question. You're not even asking the right question. You may not be in the right state. Like, it's God's life, not yours, not mine. You don't even want to know some of the decisions I would have made if they were up to me. They would have been terrible because I wasn't asking God. How do I please God? That's my question every single day. That's your question every single day when you wake up. How do I please God? Nothing's off limits. Not how do I please God between A and B. God, how do I please you today? What is it? Like, let me just tell you this. If you want to pursue God, if you really want to pursue a personal relationship with God, if you want to be vibrant and real and alive in your life, if you want the testimony of God's work to come from what he's doing in you and through you and not simply getting to hear other people's testimonies that sound encouraging, but you want him to work in power in you, number one, you may not, you may not tolerate sin that you know about in your life and expect to hear from God. You cannot tolerate sin that you know is sin in your life and you're repeating it and not dealing with it, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's um, specific temptations, whether it's habitual sin. You can't just tolerate it and be like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to justify uh, my sexual sin in this area, uh, my, my gluttony in this area, my laziness. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to add any accountability to it. I'm not going to repent of it. I'm not even sorry for it. But man, I really want to hear from God. No, you don't. You don't. What you want is your way, your plan, your comfort, and God adds a little in the end like he's your homeboy. God ain't your homeboy. So if you want to hear from God, there's that thing that you've not been dealing with, that you've been hiding, that you don't really want to talk about because if you talked about it, you know you'd have to work on it. If you got accountability for it, here's why no one wants to get accountability for the thing that they're really struggling with. Someone's going to then ask you about it. (laughs) That's what accountability means. And that's like, for some of us, that is the deepest fear ever. Come on, let's be honest. Holy cow, they're going to ask me about it. I knew God had saved this kid, this young guy, and um, man, he had come to Christ, and just all of a sudden, you could just see the difference in his life, and I'm talking to him, and um, he had started dating somebody that he was probably going to propose to, uh, early 20s, and he looks at us in small group, and he goes, guys, I don't know how to have a relationship without having sex first. I've never done it. 
And we're just sitting in a group like, this just got real? I mean, that's when the potluck gets serious, right? See, we're comfortable with the potluck. Let's, let's have some cool verses and go home. But all of a sudden, when a sinner gets redeemed and goes, well, I, I, God says this is intolerable, so it's not tolerable. Isn't that what the Bible says? And we're like, yeah, awkward, but real, yeah? He says, I don't know how to do it. So I need you guys to text me every morning, every morning, I need you to text me and ask me where I spent the night. You know what? The four guys in there are like, absolutely. You better believe we will. Why? Because he cared about a relationship with Jesus more than he cared about hiding his sin and being comfortable. Nothing's off limits to God. That means your retirement plan, like the missionaries that are in the 80s and they're still on the mission field, not off limits to God. Your family plans, not off limits to God. I saw someone the other day says, man, a bunch of y'all want to complain about what Disney's doing in some of these films, trying to get your kids, but you don't want to admit that club baseball got them a long time ago. Nothing's off limits to God. What are we tolerating in our lives? Alcohol, which is intended to be a good thing and, and it just goes too far. I had to walk in the cupboard the other day, I had to take everything out of the cupboard, I had to just pour it all out. Why? It made me too lazy. And God's just talking to me, he's like, it's making you lazy, I have things for you. You don't have time for that, okay? Nothing's off limits. Your thought life, unforgiveness. Man, I've continued to watch people wreck their lives because of unforgiveness. And it ain't even, most of the time, the person they haven't forgiven doesn't even know about it. And it's just killing, it's cancer, eating someone alive. Porn, porn is probably the most ubiquitous problem in the United States. Men and women in the church, outside of the church, married, single, because the internet is ubiquitous, porn is ubiquitous. You can get to it in three seconds. We got an issue with it? Get accountability. That's the very first thing we do when someone says, hey, man, I'm struggling with this. Awesome. Let's put some apps on your phone. Let's take all your computers, give them to your wife. And all the emails from all those apps, they come to me and the rest of the small group members. We'll see how this goes. And you know what? If you're serious about it, that's what you do. In our pastoral staff for years, every single pastor was on software just in case because nothing's off limits to God. So what that means in your life is if you really want to pursue actual, real, intimate, vulnerable relationship with God, there's probably some temptations, there's probably some hidden sin that you got to drag out into the light. Do you remember the story in Ephesus when... Um, when the, 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 the fake exorcists try to throw the demon out and it doesn't work and they get beaten up, it says the whole church in Ephesus fell into great fear of God when they heard the story. And when they fell into great fear of God, they all went back to their houses and they took out these books of sorcery and magic that they'd been hiding that they didn't want to admit to one another and they drug them out into the town square and they burned them. 
And there's a valuation, if you turn into Acts, there's a valuation of how much silver it would have cost to buy the books. That's how many books there were. There were a lot of magic books. I don't mean like Harry Potter. I'm talking like real sorcery, demonic work that they knew was wrong, all Christians, and were hiding because it was hidden sin, and it took a great act of God to give enough fear and trembling in their life to, get them to be motivated to go, it's not worth hiding in the dark. I'm going to drag it out in the light. Set it on fire. Imagine for just a minute that the stuff you struggle with, that you continue to hide, that most people don't know about because you won't admit it because you don't want to be held accountable to it. Imagine if you would drag that out into the light today and set it on fire. Church is not meant to be comfortable. So number one, how do you do it? Nothing's off limits to God. Nothing. Number two, you block out time and space where there are no distractions. If you want to know God, you've got to stop being distracted. And we're in a very distractive culture. Most of us have a phone that can give us billions of things in just a matter of seconds. Dinner tables have been transformed with people staring down at their screens. Your life is a busy life. You've made it that way. I'm going to say that again. Your life is a busy life because you've made it that way. But that busyness gets in the way of you seeking God. So if you want to seek the Lord, you block out the distractions. You give him time and space with no distraction. And then you ask him urgently. You ask him. And you listen. And yes, that can happen through scripture. It happened through prayer. It'll happen through all sorts of things. But it requires time and space without distraction. And it requires you to ask him. You have to ask him. And then, and this is the hardest one. When he speaks, you obey. When he speaks, You obey. Now, I'm not telling you that there shouldn't be good, strong Christian counsel in your life. That is incredibly important because there are times where we have a real emotional feeling and we think it must be God and really it's just that you ate Chinese food the night before. That's why we have scripture. That's why we have close Christian counsel. That's why you have elders and pastors. So you don't run off every time you have an emotion and make a horrendous decision. But when he speaks, you obey. So that nagging thing in the back of your mind that happens every time you really begin to consider the things of God, you you begin to consider whenever you're praying, you begin to consider, you know, it's like weird that the Bible gets open. It doesn't even matter what verse it's on. That same sort of thought comes back into mind and it's about repenting of something or forgiving somebody or going to your brother and sister and asking for forgiveness or or, uh, uh, giving something up or bringing accountability into your life or stop doing this thing you're doing or stop planning for this thing that God never put in your life in the first place. And it keeps coming back again and again into your mind and you've not done anything about it. We call that being a hearer of the word, but not a doer. Kings don't make suggestions. If he's king of your life, when he speaks, you obey. When he speaks, you obey. 
when the milestones of my life, the most seminal moments of my life that just stand out above all other moments is when I clearly heard the voice of God tell me something and I said yes. And it changes everything. So we can go on as good, righteous, moral, cultural Christians, staying within the guardrails of scripture, living moral lives, making sure our lawns are mowed on time, planning for retirement, all of which are nice things and miss out on the power and work and vibrance of a personal relationship with God that would be so dynamic that your entire life would actually be architected around those experiences as God moves in your life. And when you look back in, on your deathbed at the rest of your life, the things that will really stand out are actually those moments where you can miss them all and just plod down the rest of life, spending your years in uselessness. How's that for an encouraging message? This is what my prayer journal looks like. I don't want to settle for this. I don't want to spend my years being good because good is the mortal enemy of great. And what God says is be still and know me. Know me. The be still part is get yourself out of the way, get the distractions out of the way, put everything on the table, nothing's in the closet, everything's open for God's discretion, and then listen to him. So here's what we're gonna do. I want, I want you to um, take a little bit of time to consider what God is speaking to you about. So we're, she's gonna sing a song you're going to spend some time talking to God. You don't need to sing. You don't need to talk to anyone other than him. I want you to ask God to search you and know you. I want you to ask God to help him increase a hunger and a desperation in you to seek him in a personal relationship. And I want you to listen to him. That means stop talking and just listen to God work. And then what he tells you, are you ready for this? I want you to do it. I want you to do it. Now you, you may need to go get some counsel on that afterwards. That's great, wonderful, and biblical. But I want you to obey. And, and I'm just going to tell you right now, welcome to the messy life of Christianity. You'll never go back to dull, boring guardrails. So bow your heads. Rachel's going to sing. And I just want you to say this, God, I want to want you more. I want to be hungry for your presence. I want to experience your power in my life. I want to hear from you. Everything's on the table. Do with me as you will. And I'll obey. You pray, Rachel will sing. Our elders and pastors will be here if you need counsel or prayer. The altar will be open. If you just want to come up and bow at the altar and talk to God, by all means, do so. I love you, church.